Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguese, the communications director for the foundation. Today's recording is from our June 28th panel that we hosted in partnership with the Academy Education and Nickel Fellowships programs. It was all about breaking into the industry as a writer at any age. We had the pleasure of welcoming an amazing roster of screenwriters, including Ron Bass, whose credits include Rain Man and My Best Friend's Wedding, amongst countless others, Doug Jung, who wrote the upcoming Star Trek Beyond, Peter Landisman, writer of Concussion, Meg LaFauve, who wrote Inside Out, and Linda Wolverton, the writer of Alice Through the Looking Glass, Maleficent, and Beauty and the Beast. It was moderated by Foundation President Larry Andrews. The discussion covered the writer's individual paths to success after working for years in different industries. They were quite frank about the obstacles they faced and the lessons they learned. You will definitely hear great pieces of advice on how to use your life and career experiences to market yourself as a screenwriter. We've got more themed panels in the works, including one on August 9th on how to navigate the screenplay competition circuit. Check out wgfoundation.org for event and ticket information. Until next time, enjoy this recording of Breaking In at Any Age. Good evening, everybody. We have an entire audience of aspiring directors, producers, and writers all gunning for your job. So let's <laughs> jump right into it, not waste any time at all. The uh, late Walter Matthau, the actor, said, Success in Hollywood is easy. All you need is a half a dozen lucky breaks. So in that regard, you all have such a various ways of reaching to where you are now. Tell us either your first lucky break or your biggest lucky break. And anyone can go. My first lucky break is I, I went broke. I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer for 17 years. And... Um, the boss of my law firm required that we have an investment in the client's farm. And when the farm went under, even though we were supposed to just have a limited investment, we had to be big boys and step up because the client was important. And I really was out of money. And I had a, I'd been writing novels for no money, just for fun. And I had an agent who found me some money to write something for Reader's Digest, a novel for Reader's Digest which became the first film. And because I was a lawyer, I could negotiate my own deal. <laughs> got myself out of debt, got, even got a vacation. And um, that was my break. Good. Good. Who else? I, had a, uh, I was out of both money and runway. <laughs> <laughs> I've been writing, uh, uh, screenwriting was my fourth career, and I didn't start till my, it was my mid-30s. And directing's my fifth, I didn't start till my mid-40s. But uh, in my mid-30s, everything was going awry, and uh, I had no money, no runway. Everything I was writing, nothing was happening. And uh, I had the lucky break of desperation. And I had written a TV thing for HBO that wasn't getting made. And I decided on my own, without any rights, without any permission, to turn it into a feature. And I went to the producers and said, I'm going to turn this into a movie, either produce it or get out of my way. And I knew nothing about making a movie. I certainly knew nothing about directing it. I was going to direct it. And I bullshitted my way through the meeting. And at the end of which they said, well, OK. And uh, that was uh, my luck was really um, my intransigence and I think my arrogance. You know, and probably desperation. How lucky were you in that meeting? Could that happen a second time? <laughs> oh, it did. <laughs> My second movie. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, look, in all seriousness, it's an important lesson. 
especially at the very beginning, there's no pathway to this stuff. There's no permission slip. There's no course. It's really a confluence of sometimes arbitrary events that gets you to your first movie, your first script, your first job. And it's really about understanding when an opportunity strikes and a door slithers open and really just not hearing no for an answer, not even understanding what no means at that point. And really putting everything on the line, everything, chips, money, balls, hair, you know, everything you have, and, uh, and just not lifting your head until you have forward momentum of some, of some degree. And by the way, that includes agents too. I had to leave my agency to make that happen because they didn't believe in me as a director. So everything, everything went. And it was really all the, all the marbles. Thanks. Okay, who else? Uh, I, I kind of had a little bit of a lucky break with that sort of weird confluence of events and people. And it's true, you just never know where it's going to come from. I, the first script I'd ever written, uh, feature script, at this point I was doing some TV and I had uh, an agent who maybe knew my name. And I had just met, I met this, these guys, and I didn't know who they were, and I, anything. I, whatever magic words that I said in that meeting that made them go, oh, he says he's got a script. They called my agency, a feature agent who didn't know me, went down to my TV agent and said, did this guy, Doug Jung, write a feature script? And my TV agent said, I don't know, but look in that pile. <laughs> and he went in, and my, my, this feature agent, who's now my manager, s tells this story all the time, where he said he literally pulled it out and blew a layer of dust off of it. <laughs> and I didn't know him at the time, so it was this strange ping-ponging of people that I didn't know that led to, ultimately, a career. So... It, it's sort of, you know, again, I couldn't have predicted that. I had no role in that other than I happened to meet some people who we got along, and that was it. So it, it, it can be out of your hands in a certain way, and I think that's actually a good thing. Um, for me, I think it's a series of, of luck, but I would, if I had to attach one thing to all of them, I think I had mentors. I found mentors. And uh, so I, I got a job as an assistant slash creative executive, which means do everything, <laughs> uh, with Jodie Foster's company when she formed it. And I ended up, she ended up mentoring me in terms of she taught me storytelling because you had to walk into meetings and listen to her talk and be prepared to say the one time you're going to get a chance to say something to make sure it's the, you know, something smart, at least a smart question, right? Um, so she mentored me. I'd say that's my, my luckiest break is that I was mentored by such a great storyteller herself, which then is the skill set I need to, so when the other lucky breaks come, I'm ready. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, but even getting that mentorship, I could have had that job for a month if I didn't work my butt off, right? She, they're not gonna, she's not going to mentor somebody. Nobody's going to mentor somebody that isn't working really hard. Um, so I think it's hard work. I think it's about understanding that you have to commit and be dedicated, um, and then those breaks start to come, and you're ready. And I think you have to break the rules and kick the door down, which is what I did. <clears throat> I was writing Saturday morning cartoons for a living, which I loved, um, and then I burned out myself out. I saw a Disney feature film that I didn't think was very good, and I said, I think I can do better. So I had written a young adult novel that was published, and I had an agent, and I said, I really want to work, work for Disney. And she said, no. 
They don't read animation scripts. It's as if they're different. Um, and I said, well, I had this, this book. It's like a real writer. And she said, no. So I took the book, and I drove it over there myself. It was, there was no uh, dwarf building then. This was way, it was way in Glendale. There was no guards. It was across the railroad track. There's guards now. Just There's go. guards now. <laughs> because I did this. I drove and drove and drove and drove and finally found it. Took my book with my name in it and my number. And I walked in, no guard, put it on the desk and said, maybe somebody here wants to read this. That was Friday. Sunday, my phone rang. So, yeah, you got to kick the door down. That is a great example of moxie. <laughs> Meg, do you want to say something? Nope. You know, you all are so like good-looking and sparkling up here and on stage now, but we all have come from someplace. Can you give us an example of a moment or a thing you did early on that you say now, I can't believe I'm, someone hired me? <laughs> yeah, which one to choose? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, um, I had, um, sorry, I had, um, I was a, before as a screenwriter, I was a, uh, an investigative journalist, and the way I got into, I had no path to the movie business, it was following the work and following the words and following these stories, and they kept getting optioned and turned into terrible screenplays, and a little bit like you, I read them and thought I could do a little better, and, um, and there was one screenplay that um, a really good producer, a really good actor really wanted, I mean, so there's one article that I'd written, there's a cover story for the New York Times Magazine. And I wouldn't give it to them unless they let me write the screenplay. And they said no for a, a while. And then, um, and then eventually they just said yes, but I think that would be it. Did you ever have a, that, was the first, that was the first screenplay I wrote. Did you ever have a moment of just ignorance about how things work that you wouldn't do now because now you know? Oh, God, if, if you weren't ignorant about the way things worked, you wouldn't get anything done. I mean, there's no, you know, the, the, again, I don't think there's any one particular path. I think the, the, the arbitrary collection of, of circumstances that consumes people and make and their, their construction, what, what makes up people, you know, that turns into a constellation of events and that's their path. Um, I don't think it's a little, I don't think it's like graduating high school or college with a degree and then you go on to a job. Everybody comes to, you know, sometimes from students. I don't, actually, I haven't met many screenwriters or even directors who came right from film school. I know they're out there. But, you know, lawyers, you know, other things, journalists, novelists. Yeah, you know the film school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the path, the path is very circumstantial and completely independent. If you're talking about um, the moment where you came realize how dumb you are, and, it, and it's interesting because I, for 17 years I was a lawyer in the entertainment industry, and I represented many, many dozens of writers and told them how to do everything and how to deal with everything, and I was very sophisticated, and I was the knowledgeable guy, and I was like Mike Ovitz's pal, we had all these clients in common. And now I write my first film script. Uh, 17 years after learning the beginnings of this business, and I have in my contract that I get to fly to Paris. It's about a D-Day story, and um, and it's about a kid who was um, American kid who was fished out of the water when a German U-boat struck a boat, and he knows the secret of D-Day, and now he's in prison, advanced in prison, and they're going to torture him, and so the OSS is sending in Ed Harris who looks like he's a German and can speak German, he's going to try to get this kid out. That's the real cornball plot. 
It was, a, it was the novel I'd written to, so I wouldn't be broke anymore. It turned into this movie. And I'm Mr. Sophisticated. Now I'm flying out to Paris. I got two weeks on my contract. And I'm standing there in Chateau Vincennes. And I have my baguette. And I have my script. This is a totally true story. And I'm standing there, and the, <clears throat> the PA, lovely young lady, comes up and says, Ryan, would you like to see this morning's sides? I says, well, I got my script right here. Yeah. Would you like to see the sides we're doing this morning? What do you mean? I said, I have my script. Cutting the story short, she was forced because she said, I should talk to the director. No, I'm talking to you. Seven different people had rewritten it. And I had never been told any of that. And I was supposed to be the guy that knew what he was doing. And to show you how dumb luck is more important sometimes than knowing what you're doing, I'm standing there, it's like the worst day of my life, I just want to die, I want to get on a plane and go back home and cry. And from standing over my head, from about up here, a voice says, Ron. And I turn around, it's Max von Sydow. Mm -hmm. And I'm like totally starstruck. And he says, so Ron, I'm Max. Yeah. <laughs> and Ron, I think maybe, you know, the dialogue in the this morning scene, not the dialogue you wrote, yes? Yes. So you and I maybe take a coffee, and we sort of rewrite, and then I go to Jonathan. And so for two weeks, for Ed Harris and Matt Vex, I rewrote all their lines for two weeks, and then I had to go home. And all that footage got thrown out. <laughs> but it was a great lesson in, in not thinking you know anything. That's, good. That's a great story. It's a true story. I would say my first day at Pixar, I had not written for animation. And uh, they brought in all these people and they sat them around a table and they started speaking in a language I did not understand. And they were talking really fast about what sequences have to go to them when in order to hit this and because we I came into the inside out when it was moving and I was like, I don't know what anybody's talking about. But I just kept smiling, thinking <laughs> somebody's gonna realize that I'm I'm not answering any of these questions. Um, because I don't understand, because don't we have to do a script? Because we don't have a script, but you're talking about delivering sequences. What are you talking about? And it just was a whole week of that. And they're all incredibly nice, and people took me aside and explained things to me. But it was, the story itself was so hard that that, that was mind-blowing already to even try to figure out this story. And now I'm in a place that I don't even understand the language and what they're talking about. And uh, the first week, I, went, I, I flew back and forth between L.A. and in Oakland where Pixar is and I came home and I laid on my living room floor and I said, you know, this was my dream job. I had set this as a beacon for myself of where I wanted to work and I had gotten it. And I came home and I laid on my living room floor and I said to my husband, I have to quit. It's too hard. This story is too hard. I don't know what anybody's talking about. This is all, it's too hard. And he looked at me and he said, honey, why did you think when you got to the major leagues it was going to get easier? And I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> it's going to get harder. And you just have to, can you rise to the occasion? Can you rise to it? Can you just try? And I literally, you know, Annie Lamott, bird by bird, I just put my head down. And I just only looked as far as I needed to. And as a writer, sometimes you have to do, as Andrew Stanton says, 30,000 feet. It'll be in a meeting, and he'll, start, and he'll just go, wait, 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 30,000 feet, 30,000 feet. Meaning, get some perspective on this story. Get up high enough so that you can see the story. And you have to do that, but uh, when you get in those situations of overwhelm, it can help just to be like, okay, fight for the character. Who is the character? What is her story? Um, that's, that was my experience. Of in it. that week of smiling, now that they're on the other side, did everyone know that you didn't know what you were doing? Um, 
they knew that I hadn't done animation, so especially some of the coordinators took me aside and they were like, let, let, me, let me walk you through it, let me walk you through it. Um, they were all incredibly nice and, and supportive. But sometimes that doesn't help you inside because you're just like, oh my God, I shouldn't <laughs> be doing this. I think the first time I walked on a film set, because I came from animation, the first time I didn't, you know, I was stumbling over cords, you know. I had to, I had to have a hard hat. It was, in, it was their construction thing. The hard hat was too big. I was stumbling and falling. You know, people would look at me like I was a complete fool. And I thought, I just need to go home. I think I fell off of the, the, uh, the little, you know, the little thing that, they drive you around in the little cart. I think I fell off the back. <laughs> you know, there are just you know, you just have to learn to to walk in the in the new terrain, I guess, and and just be okay with it and and act like you know what you're doing. Or not, actually, no, you know that's not true. You don't have to act like you know what you're doing because if, as long as you're trying and and you know that that you're you're giving it your all, we all have to start. We all have to start somewhere. You don't have to know what you're doing in the beginning. Yeah, in a weird way, if you act like you know what you're doing, it can actually hurt you. Because number one, A, then they think you know what you're doing, and you have to go do it. <laughs> right. And nobody's going to tell you any different. And number two, because that means you're not actually being fully present where you are. You're not actually listening, because you're so busy pretending to know what you're doing that you're not actually hearing the information that's coming at you. And if you can just kind of clear away the fear for a moment and just get very present with what's happening in front of you and just ask the question, they will answer the question. But if you're pretending, you're not being authentic, and they'll start to smell it, uh, that, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. And it, 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 it's un you start to feel very, un they start to feel like you're very unreliable. Right. It's better just to admit what's going on. And, you know, by the time usually you get in these situations, you do have a lot of experience. You may not have a lot of writing experience or animation experience, but I have life experience. This was my third career. Right. And all of that skill set, all of that stuff you've learned through all of your life will start to come into play and help you. And, all, and you can use all of those skills now in this new situation. Uh, film school gives you the illusion that you know what you're doing because you're... You're writing and you're directing and you're producing. You're, you're 10 minutes short. And I went to film school and so did you, Doc. What is the value of film school in 2016 in terms of getting a degree at UCLA or USC or NYU? Now what? Is that a useful skill or is that an, actually an impediment to the long term? I, I don't know about now, but the one thing that I got from film school that I thought actually does did help me and continues to help me is... If you're lucky and you find, again, a mentor, a professor, someone there, an instructor, they, they'll, they'll teach you something that is unrelated, seemingly, to getting pages out or whatever the case may be. And in this particular case, I had a, a professor who was a soap uh, opera writer. And you know, I went to NYU. We, we all sat there like in mock turtlenecks, smoking clove cigarettes. <laughs> and, you know, soap opera, what are we going to... She taught, the, the, the thing I got after class and I carry with me still today is this idea of how to take criticism and how to give criticism. And it seems like an easy thing to do, but you'll be surprised, well, I guess not taking criticism, that sucks, but to, to, to have the skill set to be able to do that and to separate your emotions or these other things that might come into it, this natural defensiveness you, you have after having done something, that 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 was really really big, and and that was a real sort of field for figuring that stuff out. So. Yeah, I've taught film school. I've taught at UCLA, and I've taught at AFI. And 
just from doing that, I would say that the pluses are, well, that's such a great skill set to learn because you will get a lot of criticism and a lot of critique on your work and you have to give critique and you learn that skill set. But I think you also, you might find a mentor, but you find a support group which of, of the people with you in that, that hopefully will now travel with you through your career. I got that at ICM when I changed careers and when went and worked as an assistant at ICM. I still know those people. Because, you know, it's like going to war together to work at an agency, right, as an assistant, right? You're down in a foxhole. So I think that, um, that film school can do that, too. It can give you those people around you. And, you, learn, you know, there are, there are experienced people there to teach you things in a very concentrated, fast way. And then for a lot of people, it's just the deadline. You're just paying a lot of money to have a deadline, right? Is there a negative for, for not going to film school? You go into a meeting as a new writer or, or director, and you don't have a film school degree. Is that an impediment? <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> um, what's that? Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't know. I, I know a lot of, uh, and I've worked with a bunch of people who are film school or grad school uh, graduates of, of film school, and. This is not a criticism. It's just something that I've noticed is that, uh, you know, they, they're very, very hyper-focused on this thing. And it does seem like sort of a narrow, you know, sense of experience. I think that's what you're saying. You're a lawyer and people have different careers. And I've seen that a bit, not to say I'm not guilty of that, but that's one thing that I have seen in being what do you mean older. in terms of narrow focus? Well, that the, the, the things that you're talking about are all drawing from other movies. Mm-hmm. So there's a very sort of clinical academic approach to some things that when you go, but that, I don't relate to that because I just saw that in whatever movie you're referring to as opposed to what's the more interesting thing because it was real, it was human, it was coming from an experience that only you could have had. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you feel that Oh, I felt that with, with the few people that I'm kind of talking about. You know, I would, yeah, I would argue against the fixation <clears throat> of where you are and how you get anywhere. You know, the only thing that really matters is the word. And the only thing that matters if you're a director is, is the frame. And, you know, and there are really good ways that all sorts of experienced people can tell you how to understand whether what you're doing is really good because until you've seen something shot and on screen and edited, you're not really sure how it is, if it's good, if I'm good, if, if, if my concepts are good. And, you know, the one thing that I would argue for constantly is having come to this really late and not really, and spending eight years writing screenplays that weren't getting made. And so I never had the opportunity to see anything get on screen and how that felt to have words you write come out of somebody's mouth. And that's really the key is, is what you're writing does it fit in someone's mouth? Does it fit outside someone's mouth? And, you know, um, I insist when, I, when I'm between screenplay and production and when I'm directing, I do table read after table read. And I find myself uh, hearing words that looked really fucking great on the page. You know, really smart. And they just, the human beings don't talk that way. And then, and, then they, and then they talk it back and, they, and so you learn things about what you're doing. But that's really it. It's not this fixation, or not, not even a fixation, but a, a, the concept of where one comes from, come to it late, come to it late, film school, it doesn't really ever matter. I don't think anybody who picks up a screenplay is looking for that pedigree. They're just looking for you know, something that feels alive and feels new, no matter who does it. And that's kind of part of the, of the question. I'm not sure if it's true about film school, but I've given a lot of 
I've spoken in a lot of places talking about never take a writing course, never read a book about screenwriting, never take a course. Um, because it is almost unavoidable that you are giving some, some authority to what you're hearing. And that's wrong. If you could just take the lessons yourself and use them and never give any authority, but I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in where if the second act doesn't end this way, if I'm, it's incredibly frustrating and to get people who are young writers to understand that all you got is your own voice and you are all these characters and that's the instrument. It's got to play through your instrument. There's no other, no other way to do it. But aren't there young executives who have taken the key and, and, and read Sit Field and, and are using that as a barometer? And by the way, Sid was an actor in a film that I did. And we had a, had a great 45-minute fight with him in, in a very civilized fight <laughs> about, this, about this very thing. And he said, well, then how is anybody going to learn? And I said, you, you go and get 50,000 scripts of writers that you admire, of films you've seen or just the writer you admire. You get Linda Wolverton scripts and you just read them. You read them and you steal you steal, you steal the ideas, you steal the techniques, you steal all the decisions that they've made. That's how you learn, because then you're teaching yourself, and you don't have anybody to tell you how to do it. Uh, I still don't know what an inciting incident is. <laughs> <laughs> well, this audience can tell you, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and I can tell you that the, the, the movie I made last year and the movie I just came back from Atlanta shooting, I had four endings. Both movies had four endings. I wrote four endings, I shot four endings. Mm -hmm. I, I still have no idea. Showing you that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the movie gets figured out in the editing room. It really, it really does. And look, that's not to say you should write four endings, but the point I think we're all making is there's no formula for any of this. The idea that an act break has to land on page 27, again, I wouldn't even know what that even means. And it's really about a voice, it's about, it's about character, and it's about, it's about something to say. It really, it really is that simple. Are you familiar with, with the book Save the Cat? No. Because that has become the Sid Field screenplay of, uh, of our time in terms of how things are done. People, you hear that terminology in meetings all the time now. It's shifted from the Sid Field to the, you know, whatever those sort of catchphrases are that that particular author uses. But, but Ron, you're saying that is a, a false prophet in terms of how to structure? It's just human nature as to what I see young writers do, or executives at a studio or something that they'll give you the notes on what they're doing, and it's always, they give authority to these things. They believe that they've learned something, they've sat in a class, whether it's film school, I guess, or whether it's just these separate writing classes, or they've bought the book and they've read the book, and now they think they've learned something, and what it really bespeaks is how scared we all are that you can't know anything and that it has to come out of you and you have to do it yourself. It's almost like thinking you can construct yourself, you can learn yourself into, into doing this. And, and the only thing you can really do is just write and hear your own voice and let it, let it happen. So the real way to learn is to write eight scripts, keep writing them, and when you're finished with one, just start a different story and a different story and a different story, rather than sitting on one script and try to make it perfect for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Because then you will have, you will not only learn in doing it, but you will have something to pitch when you do get to have a, somebody in a room for five seconds and you can tell them several different stories that you've got. And they'll say, yeah, I want to read that one about this. There, there are, I, you have to read yourself is what I'm saying. The, the number, I'm sorry, do, do you want to say something? I mean, uh, because I, I was an executive in one of my second career, um, I didn't care about where anybody went to film school or not. Um, I just cared what kind of storyteller they were and what they had to say. Um, I, I just take a different view on those books. Um, I think the best way to learn to write is to write as much as possible. Each, write eight scripts and write 
five, six, seven re rewrites of each of those eight, because by the sixth rewrite, you're going to be like, oh, this is what I'm doing. It's going to take that many rewrites to even know what the hell you're doing. Um, so that is the way, and to read as many scripts as possible. As an executive, that's really how I learned storytelling, because I had to read, I don't know, literally 15 scripts a week, if not 20. And you, after a while, and I had to read good ones and bad ones, right? And so that is the the ground zero, I think, of learning to be a writer is doing it and writing and reading as many scripts as you can. But for me, those books, whatever book it is, uh, Linda Seeger, Sid Field, Save the Cat, um, for me, yeah, use them when you get stuck, just as a tool, like a toolbox that you open, because this draft is just stalled out, and you've given it to your friend, writer friends, and you, nothing's quite working, and maybe... Heck, you put save the cat template down and all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I don't even, there's nothing happening in the middle of the movie. It's just flat. Now, the execution of what you're going to do in the middle of the movie, do whatever comes to your mind or what's the best thing for that story. But sometimes those tools can help jag you out of whatever you're stuck in because it's this whole outside in perspective. But you can't originate from them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, they are not the thing to originate out of. You have to originate, in my opinion, from inside you and what story you want to tell and what character just keeps knocking on your brain and will not let you go, and to let that come out. Um, but I, I think those books are fine as a tool to figure out what you're trying to say or to help get make get, find clarity in what you're trying to say. Or um, And in terms of being executive, yeah, I think executives, they go to school or they read these books or their bosses told them or whatever. Uh, they give notes for lots of different reasons. Um, you're going to have to figure out how to take the note. Do you understand what I'm saying? So they have a problem somewhere. It's If you're being hired and you cash the check, then you, you, you have to figure out how to take the note. You don't have to take, you don't have to solve it the way they're telling you to solve it, right? Because that's just an execution. They're throwing an execution out to illuminate the problem they're having. And there's really good executives out there who really know the story and they can really make you a better writer. And there's really bad ones. Um, just like every every business. Um, so it's really about knowing your own craft and what you do well and how can I answer that note because maybe they're giving me a note here in the third act but actually the problem is over here in the first act. I haven't earned that third act. Like you have to be the creator and constructor of your own script. You don't have to take their execution. I was talking to an executive once and he was like, God, I have this writer and they just execute exactly what I give them in the notes. Give me $250,000. <laughs> They don't want you just to parrot back their notes. They want you, they're just telling you where it's, where they're not getting it. They don't get it. But it's not an academic exercise when you're taking the check, as she says, and the guy tells you it's a, there's a problem, there's a problem, and you have to solve it. Even if you don't agree there's a problem, sitting and arguing with him and telling him in the nicest way that he's dumb and wrong is not what you're really doing there. So as, as Meg is saying, you say, I've got to solve this problem. Maybe in the room we've got a way. Maybe you say, let me go work on this. Let me think about it. Let me think about it. Right. Let me think you can about always it. Do that. You can always do that as long as you're treating the note with respect. You're treating them with respect. You're not signaling in some condescending way that, that you're just a lot smarter and about writing. you right ask right. a lot of questions. If you don't get sure. the note, Absolutely. you don't get it. You're not asking them because I'm trying to tell you you're an idiot. I really don't understand. You don't is understand it because of this? Be yeah. Is it because of this? Do you not get it because of that? Like, they will be like, no, no, it's not that. No, I get that. And, oh, yeah, no. Or sometimes the note, you start, when you start asking enough questions, you realize, oh, 
This is a marketing note. This is a political note. This is somebody note that their boss's boss gave that they don't even understand. Like they don't even understand the note they're giving because their boss's boss's boss gave the note. Okay, that at least you know the situation you're in. I can't tell you what to do about it. <laughs> But that's the situation you're in, right? Let me take that from the other side. As a former executive, you have read probably thousands of scripts. Thousands. And, I'm, and this, is, this is for all of you because people like the people in this audience will be coming to you with a script and saying, please read this. And we'll get to how they get to you in a second. But what are you feeling or what are you reading the first 10 pages that makes you go, who is this person? <clears throat> You know, as an executive, you read so many bad scripts that literally, and this is how long ago I was an executive, because we actually had paper scripts. Um, I kept good scripts on my shelf, just like I kept Aaron Brockovich, Richard John Grobmanese's version of Aaron Brockovich, because if I would just get inundated with bad writing to the point that like, I don't actually remember what a good script is, I don't remember what a good character is, oh my god, I don't remember, and I would just pull down Aaron Brockovich, read the first 10 pages, and be like, oh, you're right. No, 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 right. Okay, okay, I remember, I remember. Yeah. I think, I, I always believe that it's about the read in this version, in this, in, you know, from, from idea to page to movie. T to me, what I do is the page part. And if I can't grab you in the read, it's the read right now. Later on, it's the, it's the frame. Right this second, it's the read. And so I, I'm not so worried about that. I want to pull you in. You know, I want I want to just I write long scripts because I write a lot of description. They're they're actually accused of being dense um, because I see it and I put it on the page so that you can see it. So I don't. I, that's why I don't read the the books and how to because I go by my guts and my instinct and it's the read and so I can I can bring you into this world with me. And then we can, once everybody likes it and everybody's in, in the world with me, then we can worry about, you know, taking it to the next, becoming a different medium, because that's what it is. It exists in that form for so long, right, that in just the script. Right. And every, you're asking everybody, when it gets down the line, to bring their imagination to that. And that, if it's not communicated well by you... Then you start getting, what, what are you, are we reading the same, what's going on? And, and I think that's, it's, uh, the accusation of having a dense script to me always seems dense. It seems really <laughs> narrow-minded, like, because you've got six because, other scripts you've got to read tonight? Like, what, what? Yeah, it is. It's because they have yeah. 15 scripts to read. Right. They're going to open your script. They're going to see chunks of, dot, of paragraphs like this. And if your name isn't Linda Wolverton, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is. Because she has earned, in my opinion, the ability to write those scripts. But if you're a newbie, I'm just telling you, they're going to open it and they're going to close it. Because that is that... What is that next? <laughs> I, I just have to be honest. Like they, 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 there's a visual on the page that they're used to seeing, and they want it to move, right? But they're by the end of the first page, they're like, yes, no, yeah, okay, next, I'll give you another page, I'll give you another page, I'll give you another page. And you know, I will admit it as an executive, there were days that I was like, by page five, I was like, let me see the end. Yep, that's the end. I thought it was going to be. Like you're not surprising me. You're not. You're not grabbing me. You're not. The concept isn't happening there uh, and I've got 20 scripts to go but when you say the visual of it do you mean you open the page and there before you is 
one paragraph filling the whole page. We are going to close it. Yeah. <laughs> Not the whole page. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the page. It's, a, it's also this thing, though, where, where we're, we're all told executives will read 10 pages tops, and if you haven't grabbed them, they're going to throw it away. So you do have to... It depends on who you are. When you're Linda and you're working, you know they're going to read the whole draft, and then you have a whole different thing that you can do. But what it takes to grab them in the first 10 pages, something that they said, I mean, grab them in the first 10 pages, great, tell me how to do that. And she did tell you one thing that's really important, and that is going against expectation. Whatever's happening in those 10 pages, if it's not surprising them, if it's, yeah, right, another one of those, you're dead. If you can surprise them, even if it's not great, they may keep reading because at least it feels like an original voice. That's the one simple thing you can just be sure to try and do. Like in God, if I actually don't know what's going to happen next, because yeah. when you read 20, 30, 40 scripts a week, you kind of know what's going to happen next. But I suddenly am like, oh my God, what is going to happen? What is she going to do? And then you've got them. They're in. They're and, then, and then when you ask yourself, how do I write against expectation, you start to have a thought, and your thought is to do it the way you've seen it a thousand times. Just say to yourself, so what if instead of kissing him, she spit in his face? What would that be? Why would she have done that? What would it look like? And when you start to ask yourself that question, sometimes it turns into something great for you. And you figure out why it is and how the story's different than what everybody would have otherwise thought it was. And it's a very simple thing to try, at least. Are there things that you can do, Ron Bass, that a, a emerging writer can't get away with? Because it says Ron Bass on the front sure. page. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, that's, that, that's a hard thing. Getting, getting started anywhere is the hard thing I write. Like, as Linda does, it isn't always about big chunks. But I write tremendous amount of prose in my stuff. It's all about what people are feeling and what's going on in their mind. And so when I started out writing, uh, it's no less a person than Barry Diller said, this kid will never make it because actors will be so pissed off that he's telling them what they're supposed to be thinking. And probably the one time in his life, he turned out to be wrong. And they do like that. Actors like it. Directors like it. They may not agree with what you want the character to think, but they like to see it. Okay, but if a writer came to you with a script, that was written like a Ron Bass script, would you go, this is genius, or what is this? It, it depends on the quality of what that, if you're talking about the point of having the prose, where you're describing things that can't necessarily be played, but they're informing the reader, as Linda says, to understand the read, and they're informing the director and the actress as to what at least the writer thought was going on here, but behind the lines. Um, if it's good, I'd say it's, it's, it's terrific. But if you use that technique and what you're saying is banal and doesn't make any sense, just to be pontificating, then it, then it's, then it sucks. It's a question of how well you do it. Mm -hmm. yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I'm going to talk about, uh, because this group wants to know how to get in, contests are, are a big thing in this town in terms of winning a Nichols or, or winning um, the blacklist. When you come across a script that has that kind of imperture to it, how much of a difference does it make in terms of how much of a head start that script has? For me, none. Really? Why? Because it's just what it is. I mean, you read a script... And I can hear, I'm working with a guy now who's like an employer and also a writer. And he'll say, well, 47 people have read this thing and they all tell me wrong. I'm saying, I'm sorry. Maybe, that, maybe I'm wrong and they're all right, but I can only read what I'm reading. I can only react the way that I react. And I don't really care if, you know, Copeland, Spielberg, and Martin Scorsese all loved it. If I don't think it's working, I would tell that person why I don't think it's working, what concerns me. I think contests are good in terms of, you know, I... I do think there's some value in this town or currency in this town. If you can say, I was a Nichols finalist, I was, you know, it made it, there's certain contests, uh, like the academies, that have weight 
uh, that, that people are tracking and finding, or better yet, it's a contest where the prize is you actually go to a lab. Like there's a contest called Cinestory that I sometimes go on and mentor at night a while. And it's all, it's like the Sundance Lab, except instead of writers telling you how they'd rewrite you, it's executives uh, and managers and people who really know story trying to help you figure out what you're saying. And again, that's all relationships happening and they might start to mentor you and you just start to get perspective on the industry and what kind of notes you're going to get. Like you're building your skill set in that contest, right? Because you're getting feedback directly on your script. So I, I think contests, I mean, to break in if you're an outsider, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. All right. Uh, I've got like two hours worth of material, and we have like 20 minutes before the audience gets involved in this, so I'm going to uh, do a little speed round. How do you, all of you are, forgive me, of a certain age, and, and we are living, in, <laughs> one of them is older, <laughs> and, and we're living in, in the age of Twitter and YouTube and, and Periscope and Snapchat. How do you stay current in terms of the newest ways of breaking in? as opposed to how you broke it. I have the best answer. I'm working with three people who, who do understand it. <laughs> In my development company, I don't understand anything about it, but I'm working with people that will tell me. Okay, so, so you're, you're getting it by proxy. That's the best way to do it, yeah. Getting, I'm getting taught. Because people put a video up on YouTube, uh, and it will get half a million hits. That's the new currency. Is that currency for you? No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, for me, the only currency is quality. You know, if it's great, if it's on YouTube, fantastic. If it's a great screenplay, read, fantastic. It's, um, you know, the methodology, I'm not even sure, is relevant. It makes, it makes public exposure of whatever you do privately a lot easier. But still, it has to be good. You know, when, when, when studio executives or when writers or when people scratch their heads about the failure of movies, you know, 99 times out of 100 is because a movie's not good. So I, I don't know. For me, for me, it's not relevant. Again, it's it's really just about um, it's how you know how musical the screenplay is. You know how uh, you know how how beautiful what I'm looking at is. That's what draws me. I don't even know how we how we would use it in any way to kind of break. Uh, maybe I'm just such a luddite about this stuff. But you know because. Beyond sort of some level of self promotion. I mean, that the, the internet really is about comedy right now. Nobody's kind of figured out how to do a drama or a genre other than comedy and really get any attention. I think that'll change. I think someone's going to figure it out. Um, but I think if you're a, if you're a com comedic writer and they can see you have comedy chops and you're getting lots of hits and it's hysterical and you have a script, like I could see that mean maybe for comedy. But remember. The internet is creating its own new form, so it, it would be like, you have to learn that form. So it would be like saying, oh, I'm just going to write a play in order to write a screenplay. Well, do you know what a play is? Do you know that it's all dialogue driven? Do you know how to write a play? Do you know the acts? You know, the internet is going to have its own form. There are a certain amount of minutes that people will even look at them, which I think is 2.5 or something crazy. I mean, you know, so it's a really concentrated fast bit and way of telling story or just moments, right? So I don't know it well enough to even speak intelligently about how to do it, but you would have to go figure it out by your own research and by watching tons of them. And, you know, and, and that's just something to add on in terms of when we were talking about books. <clears throat> within that pot is, 
if you're a genre writer, that that's what you love, you'd have to do what Ron's saying and make it unique and different and something that it's within the genre. But you also have to know what genre you're doing. Like, have you watched the 10 best and the 10 worst of that genre? Because I promise you, the people you're handing it to do know it. So if you're just breaking the rules because you don't know you're breaking the rules, that's not good. If you're breaking the rules because you know you're breaking that genre rule, I know that pure genre, right? You're doing a, a thriller, you're doing a horror, you're doing, you have, they know that stuff. So you have to be a student of your craft. Fair enough. You know, we talked a lot about screenplays in terms of breaking in. Let's talk about the meeting because it, it is a, a people business as well as, as a document business. And, and screenplay books don't talk about how to have a meeting. What is the best way to get to you personally? What in a meeting with a writer makes you feel like this person has... What's happening? Maybe they're pitching or something? Uh, you know, a, a general meeting. You're meeting a writer for the first time. What is something that really makes you go, I, this person has something beyond the page that makes me want to invest in them, and this person doesn't? Well, number one, they're not crazy. That's a start. <laughs> you have to be crazy. <laughs> and the, the, define crazy. What does that mean? <laughs> well, you, I mean, there's <laughs> good crazy and there's crazy crazy. Meaning, well, I can't even talk to you. How am I going to give you notes? Hmm. Right? You're already so defensive in this meeting. Like, just with the small talk. Or like, wow, how are you going to take notes? Like, that life's too short kind of moment. Right. <laughs> I think a kind of um, intelligent hunger. You know, I think that, you know, writers who come into a room, young writers I meet who feel closed off, whether it's because they're socially closed off or because they're closed off by what they think they know. I almost don't even care where they've been or who they are, but you can feel, it's like any other relationship, you know, whether you're dating or getting married or just having sex, it's like you, you, you want to feel a kind of expansive hunger and, and, and limitlessness and an ability to, to travel, you know, in, in, in the mind and in the intellect. Everybody loves a good tale. But there are also a lot of, you know, bullshit storytellers. And you could always, you smell bullshit versus quality or bullshit versus a real narrative. You could smell it a mile away. What does bullshit smell like these days? <laughs> um, well. You know it when you smell it. Um, fluidity. You know, when you know it when someone's telling you something they think you want to hear. I just made a movie with a producer who... Every time I had a question, he served up an answer that I could tell he thought I wanted to hear. And from, you know, pre-production through post, I never trusted him. And, uh, and I was right. And you could smell that, whether it's a producer or a writer or, or a director. And that's just a, that's a, that's an animal thing. You smell that, you feel that. Linda, you're about to say something. I, I agree. You know, I think it's really important to be curious about the world and to have a, a hunger. So if I'm meeting a young writer and they're just telling me about their story... And that's what they're telling me. But I'm looking at the person and thinking, well, you're not even looking around the room. You know, what's in this room that's drawing your attention that is, makes your, you know, your brain light up? You know, makes me think that you are more than just this particular story that you're telling me right now because you're trying to impress me. Um, but is this a person who has a fluid mind and, you know, you're, you're, you're hungry and, and, and want to know more about the world and, and want to tell a story about it? That person, I want to be around. I just want to be around that person because I want to share the energy of that human being. Well, and every, the best thing as a writer is if you can engage that executive in a conversation, 
right? Either, you know, because you're talking about a story you want to tell, but they ask you a question about it, and you're like, yeah, but here's the thing, because what about that, and wouldn't she do that? And in that time period, and they're like, yeah, but, and you start to get this wonderful flow going back and forth, that's like the money, man, because that's the jackpot, because now you both are curious, you both are interested in that thing, that story that you're talking about, and it could be either something they're going to buy or not. It doesn't matter now, because now they're like, oh, we're like-minded, we, we're curious about the same things, and boy, you're talking about something my boss would be curious about or whatever they're thinking. You know, you have to stay open in that meeting, not just walk in and be like, I'm pitching my story. <laughs> because it'll flow, it'll move around. It'll, they're gonna ask you questions. And if you stay open and be honest about what you're interested in and passionate about, you'll find a like, you wanna find someone like-minded. If they're not, then they're not, and you shouldn't work with them. Uh, when I was, hadn't worked at Disney yet, um, mm -hmm. I was pitching an idea to an executive there, and um, he said, okay, go away and think about that and come back. So I went away and thought, didn't really think about it. Came back, because I thought maybe he was going to think about it. <laughs> I didn't know who was supposed to do the thinking. So when I walked in the room, he was behind his desk, and he said, oh, I hope you have some ideas, because I don't have any. <laughs> and I said, okay, between here and the couch? <laughs> I have between here and the couch to come up with a lot of ideas. So I, and I, then I did what you just talked about, which was engage in the conversation, because there's no way I was going to, you know, do 10 ideas in between here and the couch. But so by the time I turned around and plopped my butt on the couch, I was, I had the thing that was going to start the conversation. And that's going to feed off, and it's like, next thing you know, you're, you're, you're bonding. And that's what the, the, the secret is, I think. That's a great story. I, I've been there too. These books also don't tell you how to network or, or what that is specifically. How do you network, which is where luck happens, without needing a restraining order? No. <laughs> I, I don't like to network. I mean, I think I mean, a lot of writers I know aren't natural networkers because you know, we like being alone in our room, like with the shades down, with our thoughts. But it does seem like, for the, what everybody's saying, when you have these meetings, no matter how general it might be, if it's a favor from your brother-in-law's butchers, whatever, they're looking for that person. You know, they're looking for the person behind you. So that's the thing that you leave this impression with. And then somebody might say, hey, did you meet so-and-so? Oh, yeah, he, he had a really funny observation about this. Or she had an interesting story that I was totally unexpected from what I thought of her, blah, blah, blah. And to me, that kind of seems like how you stay. I don't know if it's networking or you sort of stay present in people's minds a little bit just so that you don't feel like you're wandering around the woods alone, you know? You know, networking is complicated because it's, um, <clears throat> it's a lot like bullshit. <laughs> you know, you could smell it um, when you're being networked or when, you know, you're developing a relationship that is useful. And I like to think of it a different way. And um, I didn't know this until things I started writing started getting made and then started making them, is what an army of human beings it takes to actually make something. And really an army. And, uh, and even at the very beginning, you know, when you deliver a script to a studio, it's not just the executive who reads it, it's, you know, it's 10 people. And they go away and talk about it and they come back to you. And it's really like any other relationship. I think that what, what I look for people and people I want to collaborate with, whether it's writers I'm hiring or 
other jobs I want, is is the idea of being able to plug into somebody, somebody and them to you. So it's it's an act of collaboration, and. Um, but I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, you know, it's like any other social experiment or speed dating. If you're doing it by the book or by formula, that can also be smelled. Sometimes the best thing to do to network is just go home and write a great fucking screenplay and let the work speak for itself. And then, you know, everybody up here and everybody in, that, in the town behind us, all they're looking for is great work. They could care less about anything else. And the rest is, the rest is bonus. I imagine all of you either have currently or have had a protege in your life. How did you choose that person, or how did that person choose you? I met someone at Pixar who was writing, and she was on my team. And uh, you know, the storyboard artists are writing, and the coordinators writing. And I, I like to mentor, so I'm always I can at least read it and sit down at lunch with you. And you're helping me get through all this information I don't understand. So. And, and so I'm still <clears throat> working with her, and she found other women who were writing and down in the trenches, and so she formed a small group on Facebook, and they support each other and mentor each other, and every once in a while I pop in and, you know, we'll talk to them. And so I, I, it's people that are in my life around me that I'm starting to mentor. That's how I find them. And why did you choose her, of all people? Um, well, she's incredibly funny, and I love the way she views life, and the stories she will just tell over lunch are just so unique and specific, and she has such an interesting life, and she's lived such an interesting life, that I just feel like, oh, I, before I even read anything, I know that there's something here, um, and it's just about helping her more. She has something to say, and she just needs help with the craft or the clarity of how to get that on a page. That I can help you with. I can't help you have something to say. I can't give that to you. I can't give you life experience. I can say, well, go watch this movie. <laughs> but again, that's them doing a movie of a movie, right? It's an echo of someone's life. So it's really looking for that um, kind of dynamic, um, like you said, curious, open person in the world. Okay. Um, I work with people all day long, so I wouldn't certainly call them protégés. They're, they're coworkers, they're colleagues. Um, but they're younger than I am, and um, we do talk about craft all the time and decisions and how to handle the business side of it as well as how to handle the writing side of it. And the way they get chosen, I'll maybe talk to like 10 or 12 people to hire this one person, is a couple of I'm just thinking about it as, as big as talking. Um, because the first thing is just smart. Before anything else, before even liking them and saying, boy, I'd love to sit across this person every day for five days a week and, and, and be with them. Really, really smart. And it doesn't, that's about the only thing I get out of a general meeting. If somebody's talking to you, I know they're really, really bright, and someone who's not really quite that bright, that's number one. And then number two is the stuff about curiosity or about all that other things, it's really just, it's great to put a label on it, but to me, otherwise, it's just personal. I sit with the people that I've, that I've hired that I'm really lucky to be working with, and... They're just terrific. They're just terrific people. You just know you want to sit with them every day. And I could describe them. I could describe great qualities about them. But it's a little bit like when you fall in love and you get married. You could describe why your wife or your husband is so terrific. But it's really just the fact that it just happened and you got it and you you just know you felt it. You felt right about them. I would want to say one other thing about the last question, which I thought you would say was just a general meeting, which I don't understand what general meetings are because I've never actually been in one. I've been in a thousand that were called general meetings, but they never were. There was always it's more of a getting to know you. 
I don't know what that even means. Really. It's, it's, it's always been an agenda. They may say it's, it's that, but there's some kind of agenda. I've never been in a general meeting where someone didn't say, so what are you working on now? So have you got any idea? They just want to know something. And so it's really more about, yes, it's about personality. And we have this joke in our family, kid around with them, they'll like you better. We say that all the time, which is something that Meg was saying and Linda was saying is, yes, it's about being a person and having a personal relationship and some feedback. But in terms of, of pitching your story or telling them your story, I will say that it is preparation. And when you put a lot of preparation into it, and what takes the preparation is to be able to say it very naturally, as if it's just coming to your mind right now, but you've also prepared what you want to do. And the success in whether it's a formal pitch, yes, it's being relaxed, but it's knowing what you want to say and, and knowing how you want to say it, and it's a performance, and it's your tone of voice, and it's the connection with them, and it's the dramatic moments, and it's how you slow down your speech, and it's how you change the volume. It's where you're sitting in the room. You always want to sit as close as you can to the, most, to the major decision maker in the room so that you can speak as low as you can speak. There's a million things about that. And when you call something a general meeting, it's not a general meeting. They're, oh. they're evaluating you. That's why. I think that's, that's really important because nobody told me that. I never thought of that. <laughs> I would think the oh, I have lots of these tips. What? Yeah, if you're sitting really close to them, you can't look at them. And if you can't look at them. Oh, yes, you do. But like if I'm pitching, it, like if he's the, the, the decider. Well, that's weird, though. We, but that's we, like meeting like this. Yeah. Well, you want to be creepy. Was that? No, yeah. <laughs> but that would never. Like, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. I don't know. There's two of us in a meeting. You're not going to be like, Peter, why don't you sit here? Go. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they say to you, where do you want to sit? Where do you want me? But I do think what, because nobody is producer construction. I think what you said is so dead on. Like, when you go in with a pitch, and you're talking to somebody, and you know it cold, backwards and forwards, and you know if, if I get a crack of a smile here, that I got them. And that ability, you just feel so confident, because you can say, exactly. I, this isn't, I, I'm going to cut that paragraph off or whatever. I'm going I'm to skip this part because they either get it or they're not getting it. You, you just go in there really empowered when you have that. And I think that's something that it takes a lot of time, but that's it's something a lot of time that nobody ever told me. But it's worth the time. Yeah. It's a skill set in itself, the it pitch. Is. It's absolutely, we should be teaching classes. I really believe that. Because you have to feel the room, you have to feel your audience. And I did a lot of performing for kids. Um, I have a degree in theater for children, which is you know, why I do what I do. But the performance for kids really helped me with the pitch mm -hmm. because I can feel with kids, they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll do whatever they're going to do. So I have to keep them. I have to lower my voice. I want them to lean forward and listen to me. All that stuff I use every time I go out to, to pitch, you know, so, um, so it's, a, it's an absolute skill that we should be teaching. And you, and you have to be really genuinely enthusiastic about the story you're telling. You have to find the part of it that you love and the part of the performance that you love. You love saying this thing just that way. It's not always word perfect. You don't want to word perfect, but you want to say it a million times to yourself so that you can say it in a very relaxed, conversational way, but you know, like a performer, like a stand-up comedian almost, you know where the notes are, you know where you want to hit it, um, and you really make them believe that you love it because you do love it. If you, don't, if you don't love that story, don't go in and pitch it. Figure out what, what it is about it that's great, that, they haven't, that they're going to want to buy, they're going to want to really enjoy because you know why you've created it and you know why it's great. And you can end up in a very... There's warm moments at times where you feel like everyone's sort of there and they want to be entertained and they're, they're, they're rooting for you and there are other... I'm thinking of a couple meetings right now. So hard. Yeah, they are just... 
They know they're not going to buy four yeah. sentences yeah. in, and now they're just being polite. Yeah. And so all you have <laughs> is your sentence right now. Meg, <laughs> Meg, hold on a second, Meg. You're hearing a pitch. You're not going to buy it four minutes in. What does your mind go for the next 30 seconds? Well, for me, as an executive, I really have a lot of empathy. So Chocolate. I would just really try to listen even harder because I now I know I'm not mentally engaged in terms of my job. So in a weird way, I was, but when I'm the pitcher and I, what, I know what they're thinking about. What am I going to have for lunch? And what do you think she meant in that meeting? They're not even there. They're like, because they have, their lives are so packed. And I would say agents, managers, and, and executives right. generally have the attention span of rabbits. Like literally, particularly after lunch, do not schedule. Oh, don't ever schedule four or five after lunch ever, ever, ever. I did work for ten o'clock. Pitches like really? this, and then, and you're yelling because you're trying to wake them up. From the, <laughs> right? right? I was, I, I once, I, I slammed my hands on the table. I was like, and then it wasn't even the pitch. I was then like, and then boom. Because I just wanted to wake him up. Because I was annoyed. Like, wake up. Yeah, don't I, like, I gotta thank you. I have a meeting at three, three o'clock on Thursday. Again, those, those, those pitches, all you want is to get out of there with your dignity. I know. You know, they're just, I'm sitting here and I have, it's been a while for me to, since I've pitched a movie like that. And I'm sitting here being re-traumatized by all the experience. <laughs> the only way to learn how to do it is to go in and be deeply humiliated a few times yes. and learn. But exactly. what I can say is this is a pitch is like a song. And it's gotta be musical. Leave your notes at home, I beg you. Don't read Absolutely. Them. Never bring a note. And here's the thing is you have a different versions of a few different versions of the song in your head. If it's a warm room, you do the opera. If you gotta get the hell out of there because it's that you do the like you do the one minute ditty and you get and you get your tail between your legs and you get the hell out of there because I promise you it's all about confidence and it's about like being cocksure of yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you get your ass kicked in a pitch, the next time you go in there, it's like getting back up on the horse. It is brutally humiliating, and I'm sitting here just That's sweating. Right. Yeah, I want to respectfully disagree about one thing. Yeah. When I'm sitting in a room with somebody, unless it's like really personal, I know this one particular guy like didn't buy my thing because his boss liked me and he wanted to have his own thing. Unless it's a personal thing where there's a real reason for it, no matter how bad it is and how much it hurts and you're watching that person, just really give them a performance because they will remember that at least. They may think the story sucked and they didn't want anything like that, but if it's really a performance and you're really enthusiastic and you're funny when you need to be funny and you're really into it, you are doing yourself some good rather than just checking out because they're checked out. Never check out in a room. You, go, you only get one chance with that guy in that room that day. Make it, make it work for you. Make it valuable. Okay, I want to hit a couple more things before we give it to this audience who's waiting very patiently. Another way in, but the buzzword is diversity in 2016 in terms of unrepresented writers of, of color and women. I'm going to make a statement and feel free to say you're crazy, you're totally wrong about it, or, or give me an amen. There are things being said in meetings that I am not a part of, and I think it goes something like this. I'm a white executive. I'm not a racist. I'm, being, I'm tired of being told that I am a racist, and all I want to do is make money. All this diversity stuff is annoying. I just want to hire people that I trust, like my friends that look like me. <laughs> How close to the mark is that? Wow. If Mitt Romney's connecting the meeting, <laughs> maybe you got something. Right. We should let the chicks answer that. Let the chicks answer. <laughs> the chicks answer. <laughs> I mean, as an executive, I was never in a meeting where anybody ever said that. 
Uh, no, 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 no. This never said out loud, but this is just the, the thought about... This has been going for decades. Like, 30 years ago, the joke that circulated was, story executives are sitting around the room, and one guy says, Robert Redford, and they go, hmm. It's Sean Connery, hmm. Eddie Murphy, now you're talking story. That's, that joke is 30 years old. Mm -hmm. They've always... They've always been racist. They've always been wondering how to play that card. Um, so if, if you're not a straight white male, how, how much headwinds are there for real? Well, I don't, and I, I don't know because I'm no longer an executive or an agent. Or so, I mean, in a way, you have to ask that of the people doing this job right now because they're the ones out there. But it seems to me, I, know, I have friends who are white males who are like, we're screwed because our time is done and we're not getting into any of these we're not getting into any of these special you know programs at Warner Brothers and Disney we're not getting any of the money we're not getting, you know so you know it'll it's there's I, I don't think that's true necessarily I think there's still people hire themselves right it's what they're comfortable with um, but I think there are opportunities people are trying to make opportunities for women and, and people of color you know, there are so many stories in the world. There's so many incredible stories. And the only people to write them are the ones that have lived them. So I want to hear about it from the people who have lived them. And I don't want to hear about my life. So uh, diversity, it's just about what the world is made up of. And the most fascinating stories are from the people. I go to um, some high schools. There's one I go to that's a charter school. And I and I talk to the kids after I talk to the class, and you know they have so many great things to talk about. Their lives are either he off in hell. I want to know about it, and so I tell them, please write, please, because I need to hear your story. Because the whole world needs to hear your story. So that's to me is what diversity is. The thing you were talking about, though, it seems to me that that that's a little more, not that exact thing, because that's. Crazy town, but that that idea of diversity it seems to come up more in television these days because this is all very rudimentary stuff. But like the TV writing experiences, you spend a lot of time with these people, and there are these programs where you're if you're of a, these diversity programs that get a lot of criticism because the sort of deal on them can be, and I think they are good things still that. Outside of the normal budget of a television show, through a diversity program, the studio will now hire this person because they're of this whatever, and that won't affect your budget. So the criticism always becomes, well, I'm just this kind of token thing, and once that first year is up, you're cut out because now you're suddenly affecting their budget. Now, I don't know what the experience is because I've never been through that, but I have heard that criticism quite a bit from people who have worked for a year and then lost. Now, here's the one thing that I would say it never happened to me as an Asian-American guy, where I've written a really good script or a script that was received well. I got a meeting, and I walked in, and the guy looked at me and said, oh, I didn't know you were Asian. <laughs> That's never happened to me. So the idea, again, that as a writer, you have this thing that people, I honestly don't think they care, because the name that is on there is so secondary to the story that you just told. So there's a level of uh, anonymity to it that I think isn't quite as prevalent as something like in television where so much of that getting work in television is you gotta meet the EP, you gotta get them to sign off on you, they gotta look at you and say, you're someone I can stand to look at for 13 hours a day and have lunch you know, from uh, the Cheesecake Factory or whatever. 
every day for the next six months of my life. So I think there's sort of a, 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 a different kind of vibe. You're saying there's less, less headwinds, less challenge in features? I feel in features that, that there's less. Because you've done both. Yes. So, but again, it's because if you write a great script, people will respond to that. I really honestly believe that. So uh, there's less of a sort of, I think, vetting period about who somebody is in the movie sort of stuff and more in, in that sort of, you know, the sort of the television hierarchy of staff writers all the way up to executive producers. Okay. Uh, last thing before we go to questions. Uh, I think Meg, I think all of you, especially Meg, was talking about your life experience before you became a writer. So c can you say what is the benefit or the liability of being the older writer coming into this business? Because there is sometimes the perception that I'm too old to do this or the train has passed me by. I mean, I, I have walked into meetings where I literally have seen these 20-something execs go like that because they were expecting this hot new writer to walk in, and I'm older because this is my third career. And I, I've seen them go, oh, oh, hi. <laughs> and you just have to take the bump, right? I think, again, I think if the work, uh, there is, uh, if you're older, as old as me, the bar is really high now to your work, I think, in terms of it has to be really, really good uh, because they they, it's a young industry. They like young voices. What do you know about digital? You know, that is prevalent in the industry in terms of they want freshness. Um, but again, I think if the work is great, they don't care. It, it, but it has to be great work. You have to really have put in your time now um, to get it to that level. Is that my thought? I think it's a much of a mountain to climb as it is just a preconception. If, if the preconception is exactly what she's saying, but if they know you or they've read something of yours, that all goes away, I think. I think it's just specific to you. You know, from the inside out, I mean, the experience of being a professional writer, um, I found, I, this was, screenwriting is my fourth career and directing is my fifth. And I found that um, I just rattle less easily about little things and I get nervous less and it's just, you know, and I have children and perspective and I've seen death and I've, you know, traveled all over the world professionally before I became a screenwriter and it's just, I think it's just, I think it's like anything else, it's perspective and context. Um, and I think that when you're in a room, I don't know whether it's for the executives or directors or actors love to feel safe. I think everybody in our industry just wants to feel safe. And meaning they're safe in your hands, you're, they know that you're safe in their hands, they're safe with story, they, safe, you're safe, they feel safe because they think you know what you're doing. And that kind of maturity, whether you do or not, and you know, that level of maturity, um, I think, is like an exponential additive to that. Anna, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that, that the feeling of people want to feel safe, they're taking a big chance. I mean, you know, the, you know, for eight years I was writing screenplays and pilots that weren't getting made, and then I've written a number in a row that were getting made, and what I found myself doing is I'm no longer writing screenplays, I'm writing movies. And I think, you know, and I think that that only comes with experience and time. You know, no matter how old you are. But I think that, that again, it's about safety. It's, you know, the, the executive or the studio or the producer feels like they're in the hands of someone who has not just written words in a page, but has made movies, has written movies, dozens, in the case of these people up here. And I think that's, you know, that's wonderful. And that's years. You can't get that overnight. Yeah, like when I came on to Inside Out, I think that's a really good point. You know, Pete was on his third screening because at Pixar they make the movie over and over and over. They draw it. 
And he said to me, they walked out of my third screening and they still were saying, it's a good idea. They weren't saying, it's a movie. I need, you know, that's what I'm bringing you in for is I have the pieces, but I can't find what's the movie. And uh, to that, as a writer, to me, as for features, when they say, this is a movie, you're like, yeah, that's it. That's the gold ring that you want, because now it's a movie. And again, you only know that, I agree, by writing many, many times, getting lots of feedback and going down into that system. Well, now they are yours. Uh, so we have a microphone here and here. So bring your questions. But do this for me. Uh, a question is one sentence with a little square at the end of it. <laughs> it is not your resume. It is not your moment. And if you have a problem with that, I can help you. <laughs> so lead us off. Show us what a question is. Um, you're all wonderful. And we've really enjoyed your films over the years. I just wanted to ask Linda, I couldn't wait for Through the Looking Glass. And it was because of that narrative drive. And I thought, I'm going to go in that theater and see the sequel, and it's going to have that great narrative drive. And if you could just touch on the tool set that you use in approaching that kind of wonderful momentum. The narrative drive. Ooh. One of those terms. Well, I'm sorry, I just kind of spaced out about that. Um, what does the character want, and and what is what is what is it the hurt that's driving it, or the or the desire, and and uh, what are the obstacles in the way of it, and what are they going to learn about themselves in the process that's going to move us as an audience that we can relate to? That's what it is. I'm just going to jump on that in terms of for the women writers out there. When I mentor female writers, I have found a repetitive pattern, which is they don't truly understand what a want is because they've been so enculturated to not want but to service that I'm like, no, but what does he or she want, passionately want? They will go into the fires of hell right now because they want it. And they're just like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, no, what does she want? Yeah. It's like, what? You know, you have to really understand that that is the drive. The drive. Okay. Over here. Oh. Hi. What do you guys do for fun to, like, stay healthy and not go insane? Like, keep balanced? Anything? <laughs> <laughs> I need it. I need good question. Yeah. Chocolate? Yeah. <laughs> it's good. How do you I fail at all that? How do you fill your life in between writing? What fills up your cup? There is no life for me in between writing. I have kids. Yeah, I mean, my wife is sitting here. If I don't write for three days, I become just this monstrous dick. I mean, just impossible to be around. Um, you know, for me, um, work is, not to make a poster, but work is life. And for me, I'm not living or expressing myself unless I'm writing or thinking about what I want to write or making. Or I'm always in some phase of beginning, middle, and end on a number of different things. Yeah, for me, it's, it's actually writing, but the kind of work that's not writing, chasing the job, getting the job, dealing with people, that's the part that I take the vacation from when I write, but the people that work with me know that if I get three days in a row, I just get to write the thing that I'm in the best mood and I'm really thrilled and happy, which, which takes me to one sentence that I sort of came here to say, and it hasn't come up quite exactly yet. But in the very threshold decision about people who are aspirational writers who haven't sold yet and who don't know whether they want to do this or not, 
and they're back and forth on it. The question I ask them when I, when I see individuals is, do you want to write or do you want to be a writer? And usually when I ask that question, they think that the second thing is the good thing. It's not. It's the reverse. People who love to write, if writing is your fun, if writing is what you do and you're excited about it, if you can get up early in the morning because it's laid out there and you get to write, then you've really got a shot. And it'll see you through so many bad times and so many insults and so much failure because you get to do it. If you hate doing it, but you just think you could make a good living doing it or I get to hang out with actresses or I get to have people know who I am or whatever the hell, you can't imagine. There's a lot of people who want to be a writer because the self-image of them as a writer is a self-image that they like or they want or they aspire to. Do something else. You're, you. you're doomed if that's right. Yes, ma'am. Hey, uh, all y'all are cool, but this is specifically for Linda and Meg. Um, as a, it's like everyone's apologizing to the guys. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's there's okay. no room for the white too. male anymore. Um, uh, uh, you were uh, saying, Meg, about how um, women aren't taught to want things or ask for things. I was wondering, as women, I, I get told a lot, like, oh, you're too nice. You're being too nice. Do you feel like to succeed in this, you have to be, like, a little bit bitchy, like, to sort of, I mean, you, you guys seem like very kind, empathetic people, but do you feel like you had to, I don't know. I wouldn't characterize it as bitchy, but I would characterize it as strong mm -hmm. and um, putting their feet to the fire, if they're, if they're going to give you a note, tell me how that note's going to follow that note all the way down with me right now. That's, I'm not leaving the room until you do that. That's not being bitchy. That's like you helping me make this, make your note work. So, you know, the problem is if you're not nice, they will think you're a bitch. Right. I'm just being honest. So it's a tricky line to walk. Um, I just again go back to the word we use tonight of curiosity, or I just go back to the story. I just try to, like, we both are trying to tell this story. So I will, it, I have that kind of relentlessness, but it has to, it's always within the context of curiosity, or I don't, you know, what are you trying to tell me? What, what's your problem? I just try to, I just try to get empathetic and hook in and create a connection, but, um, yeah, you have to have boundaries, and it, the only way I know how to do it is, again, going back to what I want. Okay, I took this job, I'm in this room, I chose to be here. Why? What do I want to get out of it? What's my intention for this meeting? You know, that that I'm, I'm here and I'm getting a check and I have a job to do, but I have a life plan going on, right? I've set a beacon, and I don't quite know how this is getting to my beacon, but I'm learning, I'm learning stuff. Right, you know what I mean. So I just—that's how I don't fall into the trap of um, of worrying too much and getting crazy about what, what they want and what's happening and all the politics that are going on. I just keep going back to the story, and that—that's where I draw my strength from. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, Thank uh, you, Linda for, and, and Meg. Can you relate an example when someone challenged you and you have to show how strong you were, or tested how strong you were? But we're being recorded. We're still working in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it has happened more than a few times. Yes. Yeah, and there's been unintentional stuff of, you know, because you're a girl. Or intentional. Or intentional. And uh, that's life. I mean, listen, the other thing that sometimes I, when I mentor young women, they don't understand is 
they do take things personally that they don't understand that this is a sil you just walked into a room full of silverback gorillas. Male or female, they're going to silverback gorilla you. And so it's not, don't, don't take it personally, like, oh, it's because I'm a girl or you don't like me. It's like, no, he just puts you on your back so that you understand this is his room. Right? And, I, and you have to be like, okay, it's your room. Because guess what? You are who you are, this is your room, but I'm still at the table and I'm going to eventually raise my hand and say, now why would that? Or can, you know, you, you, can, you stay at the table. Right? And eventually, that silverback is going to start trusting you because you actually asked the hard question. You actually asked the, the question that made the story better. Right? So there is just some general political silverback gorilla stuff in Hollywood or anywhere that the kids' baseball team, it all happens. Mm. Right? Mm. You just have to know how to deal with it. Okay, Let me say just one thing about what Meg is saying. There's a tone in a room of equality or not equality. And whether you're male or female as the writer, if you can establish a conversational tone with the person you're talking to that you're equals, that you're equally people, as opposed to I'm subservient or I'm arrogant or I'm, I'm different from you, I'm here, I'm here playing a role. If just two, two people trying to figure out whatever, the, whatever it is, you're gonna do better. Okay. If you don't. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, the name of the panel is Breaking In at Any Age. And uh, you all talk about writing a great script and as, as that as being the key to your career. But how do you get your script read? You can't, you can't walk into an agency or management company now and just drop a script down and expect them to read it. I can't walk up to you and give you a script and expect you to read it. Okay, how do you get your scripts read? What is the, in, not, no. How does this person get a script read? What's the uh, gatekeeper? Well, it's probably a better question for a current agent, manager, or people who are reading scripts. Like, I'm not right now in the business of being a gatekeeper. Um, but I do think that's why contests do help, because they start to, those, those people who are out fishing will find that person. I also think a lot of writers forget that there's producers out there. And if you find a producer who's doing the same kind of things that you like to write, they sometimes are a little more open to reading because they'll make their career when you make your career. So they sometimes will send, you know, a, a, they will send you a piece of paper to sign, which means you won't sue them, right? Um, so find producers who are making movies like you're in your in the in the world of that your script is. Um, and I also believe in six degrees of separation. I hope you have a writer's group around you who's supporting you and cheering you on, and they're out in the world, and they have a degree of separation from, hey, I met this guy, and he said, this guy's looking for a script, and I don't have it, but you do. Like, all of that networking, even within the people you know who are out there in the world, because this person's an assistant somewhere, like, that does start to uh, generate work, and I will, you know, this is gonna make you mad. But a really, really good script will find its way yeah, it's because poster. it's so rare that when the executives or anybody reads it or the assistant goes, I know you have 20 scripts this weekend, but I'm telling you, my friend's friend's uncle, it's really good. We can't make it, but it's really good. It will find its way. And so if what you have is not snapping or biting, you're not getting bites, you, you do have to ask why. Like, is it just a story that it's not being made? 
they're just not making those stories right now, and it's not a good enough sample to be a sample. Right? Like there might be some math that's wrong. Like it's I I read a script with Egg once. It was a circus movie, a period circus movie, starring a 15-year-old girl, and there was a guy. The movie star was going to have to have hair all over his face. I was like, possibly go wrong, yeah. The math doesn't work. Like, there's no math to make that movie right now because there's no 14-year-old that can <laughs> get the movie made. But, you know what I'm saying? So sometimes scripts don't pop because it, there's just no slot for it either. But there's another part to the question, and seeing this gentleman ask it, I'm really aware. This afternoon, I'm talking to my team about how today do you get your script read, and their immediate answer, because they're all they're people around 30 years of age, is your friends. And different from when I started... There's a huge networking of friends and people who all know each other, who live in the same area, and they're all working somewhere in the business. And so either they're an intern or they have a job or they have a good friend who is, and they really, really help each other. I think if I started, and I wasn't 30 years old, and I was 50 years old, um, I wouldn't have that network and those kind of friends, and I think it would I be think hard. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. And that is a, that is a concern. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, this question's for Peter. Um, several of your films are obviously very controversial and are challenging to very powerful special interests. Uh, I'm wondering what are the types of problems you had in getting those made and how you overcame them? Mm. Mm. You know, sometimes it works for you. You know, um, uh, with concussion... The idea of taking on the NFL just really intrigued Sony. They loved it. You know, <clears throat> there was the one studio that didn't have any NFL relationships, so they thought, what the network have to lose? Sony loves digging it. Competition. Not anymore. It really depends on the story. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, stories... You know, here's what I'll say, is... Um, I'm having a hard time answering your question because I always go back to my operating principle for anybody I talk to is if it's really good, it's going to find a life. And if it's really controversial, sometimes that's exactly what somebody's looking to make. Obviously, studios are risk averse and so they won't do it, but there's a lot of independent money out there. You know, I just made a movie that's also very controversial that, you know, had to be made independently because a studio wouldn't do it. Um, in terms of, you know, how to weather the storm, it's awesome. You know, if controversy is good, it means people give a shit. Um, and, uh, and it means, you know, uh, you know, a story, I'll tell you the, 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 the most terrifying and awful thing that happens to a storyteller is deafening silence. Mm -hmm. And uh, if nobody cares, if it's mediocre and nobody wants to hear it, you know, and, and nobody goes and nobody talks about it, that's what really, that's the pain. That's what really It's even more for an aspiring writer. Yeah. If you have a controversial subject matter, that's a good thing. Yeah. Even if they're not going to buy it or make it, you're, the, you're not at that stage where it's got to get made right now. You've got to make an impression where somebody says, this is a great voice, this is a really original mind, don't want to buy this thing, but I would like her for this other two, three things that I have in my mind. And think about it. Very helpful. It shows courage. shows originality. Okay, I just, just want to move on because we've got a lot of questions and not a lot of time. Thank so. you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi, this is a statement and a question based on what you said Did the question earlier. first? 
<laughs> well, no, I, I don't think I fit the stereotypical writer like what you said, but I feel like I have stories that I have to get out of me. So I just wanted comments from you guys if you all feel like you all fit that stereotypical writer who just gets off hiding the room What's stereotypical writing. writing? Like it? what you said. That this oh, but you love to do it? I mean, I, I enjoy storytelling, but I'm just yeah, wondering that's right, that's if right, there's right. room, just because I feel like I have stories I need to tell, a that passion. Is, that, is, that is exactly what we were okay. saying, I think. Okay. That's wonderful. If, you, if it's about stories you want to tell as opposed to you want to have a certain self-image or lifestyle, that's exactly what we're talking okay. about. Okay. Just checking. Okay. If any, any other comments, I welcome. <laughs> I think you have to put it down, though, because oh, yeah. if it's not on paper... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Obviously. Right. Well, you'd be surprised how many screenwriting panels I've been on. People come up to me later and they say, I don't know, I guess it's right. What I And they go, well, did you write it yet? And they go, well, I haven't written it yet. But when I do... Okay. You know, so, anyway. Yeah, and you have to expect that that story that's in you is going to take 10 drafts. So get going. you got 10 drafts to write before it starts to really get good and gel. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you all for being here and inspiring us. My question is for Douglas. Um, how much uh, of trucky anger about Into Darkness informed writing beyond? There's no good way of answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that uh, we were uh, respectful to the things that came before us. We listened to what Trekkies had to say. And at some point, you have to throw that all away because it's just going to get in your way. So focus on what we did, Simon Pegg and I, is we focus on the things that we wanted to see. We focus on the characters, their dynamics, how we shake those up. We focus on what we wanted to say in the sort of, you know, shadow of the 50th anniversary. And then everything else has to kind of take care of itself because you can't, if you sit there and you go so-and-so from... Arkansas didn't like that Spock was a lefty in that scene and then he was really, you know, it's just, you're just not going to get anywhere. So, he was respectful of everything, but at the same time, trying to forge our own kind of path. So. Cool. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, I was lucky enough last year to be a finalist for one of those fellowships. Um, I had never had a meeting before. And I went in and I felt like Chris Farley and Tommy Boy, the first half of Tommy Boy, just tripping over everything. And I felt like I made a complete ass of myself. Didn't get the fellowship. My question is, after an experience like that, is there redemption with those same sorts of people or is it just move on and don't try that path again? <laughs> Good question. Isn't what I'm done? <clears throat> no. Have a better meeting next time. And they'll welcome it. Absolutely. Yeah, if you if your work got you back into that spot, and by the way, those executives change over so fast, it won't be the same. Too. <laughs> They're all gone. They're all. Hi, it's my question is to all of you. Let's say uh, you have given great advice. Thank you very much. All of you of now today, meet a new writer who was you guys when you were starting out. What advice you would give that person? <laughs> well, Meg's advice was to, was to was she have 10 drafts to do every story in, and I'm not sure that, that I see it the way she does. I, I feel like there's an internal clock that tells you when, when you're not really changing it in a way that's improving it for you, and it's kind of where you want it to be. I'm, a, I'm the person who urges you to keep writing new scripts also. And I don't mean stop at the first draft. 
yes, you have to know when you when it's enough. But if you write several different things, you will learn. You will have more things to pitch, more ideas, more things to sell, more confidence in yourself as a writer. And too many people stop at the first thing or the first two things, and don't keep inventing new ideas. You know, I um, oh, where'd you go? Um, oh, there, right there. <laughs> um, I have this pet theory that has no scientific fact behind it. Um, I started off as a novelist and as a journalist, and now I'm a writer, screenwriter. I have this pet theory that says that writers have one story to tell. They just dress it up differently. Different time, different geography, different gender, different... But they really have one story, and the story they have to tell is their story. And so the most important thing I think a writer needs to do is to understand what their story is what they're dying to say about the world and about their life and about living. If you could find that, then that will inject whatever you write with a kind of energy that becomes musical and infectious and good. You have a much better chance of it being any good. If, you, if you're not a Trekkie, I mean, if I, if I was asked to write a Star Trek movie, I wouldn't even know how to begin. Um, but I wouldn't attempt it because I've spent, you know, 20, 30 years writing my way toward what I know I have to say. I mean, that doesn't mean other people want to sit and listen to you. But at least what you will write will be read authentically and they'll feel real and they'll feel injected with some kind of authentic spirit. So that's what, that's, for me, that would be job one for a writer. Okay, thank you. Over here. Hello, thank you for coming. Uh, how do you know the tenth draft of the script you write is going to be the one that the producer is going to love and not have you thrown out, being laughed at, made ass, etc.? You don't. How do you, how do you know anything? What you have to do is trust that you're going to do the best you can, you're going to follow the voice that sounds right to you, and there's a thousand producers and it just takes one to make your movie, and then I hear 99 and it turns it down, it doesn't even matter anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that by the 10th draft, you probably have your, your levels of people who've read it, like you have your first inner core, people who are just always like, who read that first draft and are like, keep going, like mm-hmm. those are the good people to have for a first draft, right? <laughs> just keep going, I like that. Scene, moment, dog, the dog in that scene is great, right? You need those people for a first draft, right? By the 10th draft, you're, you're going out to your friend who hates everything. And he loves to shit all over everything you do. And he has to admit to you, okay, it's okay, it's, it's pretty good. Okay, you're ready. You know what I mean? Like, you can get feedback from the layer, and you never give that guy that shoots on everything the first draft. I mean, I have a friend who did that, and I was like, so you just self-sabotaged on purpose because you knew he would hate it. And you just, you were for whatever psychological reason, you were trying to get out, right, of that situation. So, you know, I think you, when you get certain feedback, you know it's ready to go out to a higher level, like, an, like a, your friend's friends whose assistant is an agent, blah, blah, blah. A minority report to that is... Don't overvalue what your friends say, even the ones that the, the, the cynical guys and the guys that are supporters. It's still got to come out of you. And there's still the final responsibility for when it's ready and when it's good is yours. Okay. Good. Thank you so much. Welcome. Hi. So as a writer, for me, one of the things that has been for me, like I feel a transition creatively into becoming more confident is being more emotionally honest with myself and my stories and transporting my own experiences into the stories, whether they're just intimate dramas or just crazy sci-fi bonanza. So I was wondering, for all of you, when was did you have a moment where you, your emotional honesty started to translate into your writing and did it feel like a breakthrough to you? And could you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I had... Uh, uh 
I had a, my breakthrough was I found myself uncontrollably weeping. <laughs> I wrote a scene. This is true. I just I wrote a scene, and it was at the end of a movie, and it was at the end of a script, and I felt obviously I felt more connected to it than I knew, and I just I felt what they were feeling, and it landed. It felt authentic, and it felt real, and I you know, and it, and it was. That was yeah. Amazing. If I'm not uncontrollably weeping at every single script, I'm not working. <laughs> you know, I, you know, that's just what happens with me. Did you see the movie Maleficent? I have not actually yet. The, in the movie, uh, I was doing an interview about the movie uh, after it was done, made, blah, everything. L.A. Times interview. I was talking about the movie, and as I was talking about this movie that I'd written two years ago, I realized that the movie was an apology to my daughter for my divorce. Wow. The whole movie was that. It all got fantasized in this big thing with wings and fairies and blah, blah, blah. It was me apologizing to my daughter. It came down to that one speech. What if you realized it before, like in the middle of writing or even before you started? What would, what would that have done to you? So I, I, would, I wouldn't have been paralyzed. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to. It had to go through the filter of... Thank God it happened two years later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, it has to come from you. We were writing so fast on Inside Out and going so fast that um, it was just like, get it out, which was great because all those blocks that come up psychologically and unconsciously to keep whatever that emotion is, that emotional authenticity down, I didn't have time. And... Like I said, you, I write it, we board, they board it, it goes up, and you watch in a theater bigger than this, 300 people watching it, all within Pixar. And the scene where she comes home at the end to her parents and basically says, you want me to be happy, but I'm not. I'm in the theater with all these people, and I realize, oh, right, that's what I wanted to say to my parents when I was 11 years old. Yeah. Like, I literally was like, oh, oh, and I felt so, like, something about, like, I'm so embarrassed. But it was, <laughs> but, it, but it worked, right? Like, and I agree with you, if you're not having an emotional reaction when you're writing, at least in one scene, you're not on it. Yeah, that, that scene in particular is my favorite movie scene of the last couple of years, so thank you for that, too. <laughs> Well, thank you. Yes, sir. Hey, guys, thanks so much. Um, something that I just hit in my writing right now is the um, fe feeling of just, like, everything I write is absolute bullshit. So, like, that self-critiquing, I have never felt that before, but all of a sudden this past week it's just been like, oh, God. But, like, what's something that you guys have been, been able to, like, work through that? If anything, I don't know. To be inauthentic when you say it's all bullshit, it's not sincere, it's not true to the characters, what do you mean by that? It's all bullshit. I don't know if it's like self-critiquing or like me being a perfectionist or like just like not being able to like... It's just not good, you mean, in your judgment? Yeah, yeah. Like writing it, reading it, and then going, oh, this isn't good enough or whatever, and then like not being able to move past that. Do you have something else you can write at the same time and put that aside and work yeah. on something else? Yeah. That's what I suggest. You'll be solving those problems without yeah. even knowing it. You'll be solving today's problems, and in the thing you write tomorrow, it'll give you insight, and you'll go back and, yeah. and feel better about it. Get your mind off it? Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm not going to get your mind off it. Subconsciously, yeah. You'll yes, but, but also learn from what else you're doing. As, as I was saying, you'll 
you will be solving your today's problem and tomorrow's work. Yeah, because maybe your that idea is a little bit bigger than you are right now in terms of your craft. And if you write another script and get your craft right, and all of a sudden you can see it where you couldn't see it before. And the other thing I would say to you is, congratulations, you're a writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because everybody feels like, oh my God, this is such crap. That is say, part of the process. <laughs> I know. Cause I, I mean, it was just last week. It's every day for me. <laughs> maybe I just awoke to it and. I'm realized, oh, damn it. <laughs> well, I don't know. Cool. Also, go read something that you know is great. Like, go pick up a screenplay of a movie that's been made, that's wonderful, to remind yourself of something that really works, and you already know how it works. And read that and read another one, and read a third. You know, that's, until that's, that's great advice. Yeah. You start to, that inspires you. You just say, I can do that. Yeah. And I also, in terms of that emotional authenticity, sometimes I'd have students who... They just love to critique their own work, and they, that's a cliche. I won't write it because it's a cliche, and I won't do that because, you know, and I'd just be like, what are you afraid of? Mm. Write the cliche as a writing exercise because you are so resistant to writing it that there must be something underneath there. You know what I mean? Like, push into the script where you feel the most the resistance because there might be amazing juice under there. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. It's just real quick, if you're going down the road, and I don't know if any of you have direct experience with this, but I'd like to know what you think regardless. If you're going down the road of trying to take shorter form things that you've written and actually produce them and shoot them and get them made and use that as something that's just indicative of like what you're working towards with your longer form stuff or the kinds of things that you want to do just to get examples of stuff in the world, kind of twofold. Do you, again, indirectly or directly, have any experience with that being useful or, or, or working as a tool? Or is that just something that you're doing as an exercise in refinement, kind of? You know, I always feel like movement begets movement. Nothing's going to hurt you. It's certainly not going to hurt you. And someone might see it or it gives you another idea or it gives birth to another idea or another, or a short becomes a feature. But it's never, nothing, no work is a waste of time, even if it feels, even if it's shitty. You know, at least you get that out of your system. But I really do believe movement begets movement. You know, you meet someone, you meet a gaffer on your, the short that you made. And the gaffer has a brother who's a director who likes your script. I mean, it's just moving in the world. Shit happens to you. Things come to you. You happen to it. You know, it's just, get out. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thank you. All right, last question. Bring us home. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. Thank you for coming. So... This could be a subjective question related to a specific type of, uh, I mean, story plots or scripts. So, stories that or the scripts that involve an ambiguous ending or where the, there's no clear conclusion by the end. So, as a writer, like, do you leave it to the audience to decide, like, what they believe or what is right for them? Or, like, secretly you have something in your mind that you actually believe that this should have been, let them decide, like, what they believe like should have been right or wrong for them for ambiguous story endings are. I'm assuming this is a little tiny indie made for five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, right? An ambiguous ending where you're not going to tell the audience what it is, then that's a little movie, right? That's a an indie film, right? Do you mean like the ending of Sopranos? Uh, something like that. I mean. Uh, that's why I said it is a subject. I think, I think like 99% of the time Meg is saying is true. It could be that you're telling a story that what's earned is not knowing what happened because it's not relevant. And the real lesson of the movie and what you're taking away has nothing to do with the end. That's possible. I've 
think I've done that myself once or twice. It's very, very rare. And 99% of the time is a cop-out. And it makes sense if you want the audience. They've sat there for two hours. They've watched something. They want to see which, which guy she chooses or whatever it is. Do it. Pay it off and make it, and make it the right decision. Make it the thing that your film's earned. Thank you. Yeah, sometimes you want to leave an audience with a feeling of anxiety, though. <laughs> I mean, concussion, they've already got that. What's that? They've got that. They just, yeah. No, I mean, I, the movie I made last year had, was a really ambiguous ending. And, you know, the, and it got hit for it. You know, and got, the reviewers didn't like it, and some studio executives liked it, and, uh, you know, the actor liked it, and some people didn't like it. But it was, it was a... Um, it was, an, it, was a it was definitely a choice. It's a social issue. That, that film is about something so in the gestalt, yeah. so in the news, so yeah, yeah, yeah. almost documentary, even though it was an incomplete, an incomplete issue. That's true. Exactly. That's true. I think it depends if you want to leave an audience unsettled or not. I don't know. Depends what it is. But that's a specific feeling. Unsettled is specific. True. Versus, I don't know, what do you think happened? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be in that. You don't want to be in that. Story. I want to be there. Ever be there. All right, thanks a lot. Well, now you all know exactly what to do to break into Hollywood. Uh, I know you thanked me to join, join me in thanking our guests for having me. Thank you for tonight.